It is so good to be here and to see you. We, um, Donna and I were up in the mountains of North Carolina last week um, looking at leaves and sitting by a creek and eating good food. You know, it was fun. Something we scheduled over a year ago. And um, so we enjoyed it. It was weird. First time in my life I've taken a vacation when I didn't feel like I, had to, I needed one. You know, I was like, wow, that's weird. Go on a vacation, you don't feel like you're so desperate for it. I've never had that experience, but <laughs> I did now. <laughs> yeah, we can check that off the bucket list, I guess. Um, but uh, if you would, open your Bibles to Revelation 2. And by the way, you've got, uh, there's Andy and Chrissy's little one, cassette. I lost the rest of it there. And then Austin and Brielle's picture. So if you missed them standing up earlier, now you have that. So um, they, they were able to retrieve those and, and get them up there, so. But if you would, open your Bibles to Revelation, the second chapter. Uh, we are in a series in the book of Revelation. Our somewhat lengthy title for the series is The Revelation of Jesus Christ, Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World. And the particular title for this message to the church in Pergamum and to us today is War of Thrones, War of Thrones. Not Game of Thrones, for those that might be hoping that we're going to play a video game, but no, in fact, War of Thrones. And our text is Revelation chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 12 through 17. I will be reading from the New International uh, Version of Scripture. Um, You can follow along in whichever translation you have. To the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. I have a small number of things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. If you would join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, open our hearts to understand, to hear. Let us be those who have ears to hear, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. The book, which I began reading on uh, my sabbatical and finished shortly thereafter, titled The The Radium Girls, The Dark Story of America's Shining Women, tells the true story of several of the women who worked for one of two corporations that manufactured glow-in-the-dark watch or clock faces as well as instrument panels for military equipment beginning during World War I. 
Despite knowing the dangers which radium posed, these companies hired hundreds of teenage girls and taught them to paint dials, the, the clock faces, the watch faces, the instrument panels, by lip pointing. It's a process wherein they would take, I've got one here, so let me just grab it. A, um, let's see here, if I can find it real quick. Yes. They'd take a paintbrush, you know, just a little artist paintbrush like this. And they were taught to take it, dip it in the radium paint, point it with their lips like that, get it a little wet, so that they then have a sharp point that they could paint accurately on the window. Of course, ingesting radium with every single turn of the brush. Um, they were told that not only was this not dangerous, but that it could actually improve their health. Like calcium, however, radium attaches to the bones, so there were no immediate effects. It just went down and resided in the bones. It has a long half-life, so it would just lay there dormant for a while until it started to do its thing, which could be manifest in so many different ways depending on what it decided to attack. I will spare you the agonizing details of what they suffered, but it began destroying their bodies from the inside out, leaving these young women to endure slow, agonizing deaths over many years. In fact, the case became known publicly as the case of the living dead women. In the final brief for the lawsuit against the Radium Dial Company of Ottawa, Illinois, filed on March 28, 1938, Leonard Grossman, the attorney for these women, who was quite the orator, he wrote the following, quote, Language can coin no fitting words of reproach when, with which to condemn the cool, calculating radium dial company. Just one of the two companies. Workers were lulled into a false sense of security by dastardly and diabolical false and fraudulent misrepresentations. The company knew, he wrote, the legal duties which it owed to its employees and murderously refused them. And then listen to his conclusion. I cannot imagine a fiend from the, uh, fresh from the profoundest depths of perdition committing such an unnatural crime as the Radium Dial Company did. My God, is the radium industry utterly destitute of shame? Is the Radium Dial Company utterly dominated by a beast? Grossman used apocalyptic language to describe real things that seemed unimaginable. Is the radium dial company utterly dominated by a beast? Yes, it was. And the name of that beast was greed, which is idolatry, according to Ephesians. So, and, and that greed so controlled these those making decisions that enabled a beast to destroy the lives of these powerless women. Words, like Grossman used, allow us to express the horrific in a way that unmasks it. I don't know what familiarity Grossman had with the book of Revelation, but he knew a beast when he saw one. Indeed. The townspeople of Ottawa, Illinois, didn't see it that way, however. 
For them, radium dial was a source of prosperity for the town. It had put them on the map and raised their standard of living. When these women filed suit in the middle of the Depression, no less, they were slanderously accused of faking their illnesses, and they were shunned by many of the townspeople, adding to their pain. Well-meaning people often defend beasts because they believe them to be the source of peace and prosperity. Well-meaning people often defend beasts because they believe them to be the source of peace and prosperity. At the heart of the prophetic message to the church in Pergamum is a beast. Though he is described in less apocalyptic language in our message, he is no doubt there. You could say this message is about a war of thrones between a lamb and a dragon with a beast on a leash that has already eaten one of their own, Antipas. We'll explore the message under the same five headings that we have used in each of these messages. Um, There's Christ's credentials, there's Christ's commendation, there's Christ's uh, uh, critique, His criticism, rather, of them. There's Christ's corrective, how do you get back to the path? And and then finally, we we have uh, uh, the Christ's consequences, which are the consequences whether you do or don't follow what He instructs. So under that first heading, Christ's credentials, and look with me again at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. This credential of Christ is drawn from the vision of Christ in chapter 1, as are virtually all the ones that are in each of these messages. In chapter 1, verse 16, in that vision of Christ, we read, Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Well, the other six messages in chapters 2 and 3, each list at least two credentials of Christ. Pergamum's message offers only one. That credential, that description of Christ carries the whole tone of the message and purpose of the message. This one line of description is repeated for emphasis close to the end of the message in verse 16 where we read, Repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So there it is again. The sword in Christ's mouth is a picture of power. The sword is a picture of power. Rulers of the time had the right of the sword. That's what they call it, the right of the sword. Meaning the the power to rule over every area of life. Including the right to execute enemies of the empire. That was the right of the sword. Romans 13 speaks of rulers bearing the sword, which becomes an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the evildoer. In Revelation, we see that sometimes rulers bring the power of the sword against the righteous, like Antipas, Antipas, uh, who was put to death. John has already informed us that grace and peace come from Jesus Christ, not from the emperor or the king, but from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, who is ruler of the kings of the earth. That's his throne. But Satan has a throne. He rules through a beast. And he claims to have that right of the sword. But Christ is the one who truly has it. 
It's interesting because Antipas is also called Christ's faithful witness. And he was put to death over the question, who is truly the ruler of the kings of the earth? Fundamentally, that's what's at the heart of his death. Who is truly the ruler of the kings of the earth? Is it Caesar or is it Christ? The sword coming from Christ's mouth is a sign of his power and authority as ruler of the kings of the earth. But it is more than that. The imagery is that of a vicious war. There are two kinds of swords mentioned in the book of Revelation. One is the Machaira. It's a short sword, and I think we've got pictures available for these. Uh, the other one. Go to the other one. That one. That's an 18-inch. That's a Machaira. That's an 18-inch dagger, we might call it. Long dagger, but dagger. Uh, short sword. That's what Roman soldiers carried about them as they were keeping the peace you know, in the community. Uh, it could do plenty of damage, don't get me wrong. But the second one is the Rumphaya, which is, if we go to that one, that one, the handle, you see the handle on the right, that's two feet long. And the design is so that you can hold two hands on it and, and swing it back and forth. If it's two-edged, like the one in Christ's mouth, it cuts as it's going both ways. The blade itself is a yard long, three feet. I mean, you've seen a yardstick. That's on the end of a two-foot handle. That's, that's a serious sword. And the, the warriors would take those, and they could in one swipe cut a shield entirely in half. That's the sword that's in his mouth, figuratively speaking. But the picture, the imagery, is that of a vicious war. And indeed, there is a vicious war going on. Antipas has already died. The imagery is immediately discomforting and even unnerving. But it need not be entirely so, though it should be at least partly so. It is a picture of Christ coming to them in judgment. It serves as a reminder that when he is, what he is about to say is serious and that he is the one who is truly on the throne and has the power of life and death. This coming in judgment would have been Gladly welcomed, for instance, by Antipas. It would have spared him. But needless to say, it should put fear in those who were the objects of his uh, critique here in a moment, his criticism. Uh, But let's look at our second point in verse 13, Christ's commendation. He does commend this church for some things and very significant things. He says, I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. That this is about a war of thrones becomes immediately evident. Where Satan has his throne. There's where the battle lies, right there. Whether or not this referred to something specifically in the city of Pergamum that the audience would have known as the throne of Satan is uncertain, speculative. There's many things that have been suggested that might be the reason why. Oh, he he said that Satan lives there because of this temple or that temple or this altar or that altar. And any one of those might be true or might not be the case. They're not specific enough to know. So, for instance... 
uh, a few of those ideas, maybe some of the more common ones. When approaching Pergamum from the south, the Acropolis on the mount of the city with the buildings surrounding it uh, might look like a throne. However, that would not be unique to Pergamum. We might have said the same thing about Smyrna, for instance. Associated with the serpent Satan, of course, in Christian uh, ideology. But this was not entirely unique either. Still others point to the healing center of uh, Asclepius, uh, which had the serpent on a pole because of its healing claims of healing power. You see it when you go to a doctor's office oftentimes today. You see the pole with uh, the serpent on it. That's the uh, Asclepius is uh, the god or goddess, I forget which, that is being honored there. Um, Maybe more to the point, though, is Pergamum's relationship to Rome. Pergamum's relationship to Rome. Asia Minor became part of Rome, not by conquest. Rome didn't come in and conquer them by killing a bunch of people like they did everywhere else. No, they were predominantly, there was some of that, but it was a small portion. They were predominantly uh, granted land by the people of, of Asia Minor, beginning with Italius of Pergamum, king, who granted all his land to Rome. And led as an example for others to do the same. Pergamum was later made the capital city of Asia uh, for these reasons. But also they they had a temple to the goddess of Roma. uh, And they also built a temple to Augustus displayed on many coins of that era. Uh, George Eldon Ladd describes, uh, describes it this way. He says, John used the phrase, the throne of Satan... Because Pergamum was the center of the imperial cult with its worship of the emperor, which was becoming the greatest danger to the Christian church. I think that's really the core issue that we have to focus on with this. Satan later, later in Revelation is called the dragon, and he is said to empower the beast, which is the political system of Babylon slash, we could say, Rome, to make war on the saints. That's in Revelation 12 and 13. Satan's throne is making war against the saints in Pergamum through the beast. And then Jesus says, Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Some in Pergamum, the church there, refused to offer sacrifices to the idols of Rome and the emperor. They remained true to the name of Christ. They did not renounce their faith in Jesus And give it to Caesar or any other god for that matter. They remained true to Christ. Rome had its myths. Every civilization has its myths. Uh, We have ours in America. Some of them are good. Some of them not so good. We just, we we have our myths, you know. I mean, one of the ones we, you you learn in school. I mean, it's real simple. Talk about how these various, you know, Columbus, maybe it was Leif Erikson. You you know, you hear all the possibilities. They, They discovered a new world. Really? All brand new. <laughs> uh, no, they didn't. <laughs> um, but that's the story, right? It justifies a bunch of stuff in history, right? And, and so, but it's a myth. But we use those kinds of things. Some of them are conscious. Some of them are subconscious. Like that one, it really just kind of filters into our subconscious. It's how, how we begin to think. But they, they, they orient how we live. And... and, and True myths, false myths. Uh, Rome had its myths, had five particular myths. 
particularly relevant to the book of Revelation. We'll look at one of them here in a moment. Those five are empire, peace, victory, faith, and eternity. And we're going to look at faith because that's relevant to our message to Pergamum. These are the myths on which the empire was built, and Christ counters each one of them in the book of Revelation. Um, in, In the message to Pergamum, it's this myth of faith, or better, I'll just use the Greek word pistis. And I'm using that not because I think it's important to use a Greek word. It's not. Um, and it really it doesn't sound great in English anyway, pistis. But, you know, <laughs> it is what it is. But <clears throat> uh, that there are, there, there are other English words into which pistis, or what we call faith, can be translated. And in this case, I would argue should be, in many cases should be, but certainly here. One of them that you might be familiar with, it's commonly done in the New Testament, is faithfulness. So it's not just about believing in something, it's about adhering to something and being faithful to it. Okay, And other words that it would be used predominantly when, t- when talking about uh, Rome and t- talking about the political system, which Revelation is full of, uh, it would often be trans- should be translated like allegiance or loyalty. Okay? And so that's what rings true in, in this context, the context of Revelation. Um, in the kingdom or empire of Rome, allegiance, or we might say faith, but allegiance in Caesar, to Caesar was considered the social glue that held society together. They were indivisible because their faith or allegiance to, to Caesar and Rome. Jesus, the king or emperor of the empire of God, demands soul loyalty or allegiance. That is the glue that binds the church together. The fact that we have turned pistis, faithfulness, loyalty, allegiance, into merely mental assent to a number of theological statements about Jesus that has little impact on our lives might explain why there seems to be no glue in the church today. Holding strongly to his name, yet you remain true to my name, and not denying allegiance to him, you did not renounce your loyalty to me. You did not renounce your allegiance to me. That's how we could read that last half of that sentence. Those are two sides of the same coin. One states it positively and one negatively. You remain true to my name, positively, negatively. You did not renounce your loyalty or allegiance to me. Given that Antipas had already been martyred, the stakes are high on this issue. And they knew it. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city. In Revelation 17, and we already talked about how in 13, the dragon, Satan, uh, empowers the beast to make war on the saints. But in Chapter 17, we read that we see where Babylon, being pictured as a harlot, is drunk on the blood of God's people, the blood of those who bore faithful witness to Jesus, loyal witness to Jesus. Babylon is built by drinking the blood of those in its way. Frankly, it won't care whether they're Christians or anything else. If they're in its way, they will drink their blood. That's it, that's what Babylon does. The new Jerusalem is built by the blood of the Lamb, the ruler himself. Antipas' blood was dripping down the beast's chin, even as we're reading this message 
or as the church is hearing it, read to them, that blood is still dripping off the chin of the beast. Now let's turn to Christ's criticism, which frankly dominates the the letter. Verses 14 and 15. Nevertheless, I mean, you've, been, you've remained faithful, you've not denied my name, nevertheless. I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I have no small number of things, or I have a small number of things against you. Now, given the sword coming from his mouth, it is not I have a few insignificant things or some small things against you. They're not small things. It's a small number of very significant things since he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. Let's not confuse those two issues. It's a small number of big issues. And depending on how you read it, there are either two or three things listed, you could say. I suppose you could break it down possibly more. I'm going to go with two Related but distinct things that are mentioned here, and I'll explain that. Uh, The first is eating idol-sacrificed meats, and the second is committing sexual immorality. Eating idol-sacrificed meats, committing sexual immorality. Um, These two items are listed together regularly in both the Old and New Testaments. Particularly relevant to our text is the letter from the Jerusalem Council. You may remember... Paul begins his ministry to the Gentiles and all of a sudden a bunch of of men come from Jerusalem claiming that they've got apostolic authority to require the Gentiles to be circumcised. And so Paul says no and he heads back and says, hey guys, we've got a problem here. Basically, I'm paraphrasing very loosely. And, and, And so they have a council that comes together and they make a decision regarding this. And and, and, and in that decision, they write, after that decision, they write a letter stating the decision for Paul to take back to the churches and to read in the churches, which he gladly does. And in that letter, it says, It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Acts fifteen twenty nine. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid or to keep yourself free of these things. Jesus connects these things to Balaam's story in this message, this prophetic message he's giving through John to the church. What is the teaching of Balaam? Well, Some are not holding fast to Christ's name. And oh, you believe a set of things that are wrong. No, you're practicing a way of life that is wrong. The Old Testament story regarding Balaam and its subsequent tradition of Balaam addresses both eating uh, idol sacrifice meats and sexual immorality. And it is, I mean, honestly, it's a strange story. I mean, aside from the fact that it's got talking donkey in it, I mean, that's strange enough. But, but the whole story is just bizarre on so many levels. You'll find it in, in uh, Numbers 22 um, through 24 and into 25. Um, Balak, the king of Moab, fearing that Israel will annihilate Moab, tried to hire Balaam, a prophet, to curse Israel. 
The Lord tells Balaam not to do it, so he refuses to do it, but then finally relents to at least go and meet with Balak. And on his way, his donkey stops because he sees an angel of the Lord standing in his way that Balaam can't see. Great prophet, can't see the angel, but the donkey can, you know. Um, And the angel of the Lord, as explained by the donkey later, is standing there holding a sword. Guess what? A rumphaya. That big one. (laughs) He's ready to do business there with with Balaam. Okay? Um, Balaam, although hired to curse Israel, as the story goes on, continually blesses him time after time after time after time. And it ends with Balak, the king, so angry with Balaam that he refuses to pay him the wage. And we think, before reading along without any further insight, that, okay, story's over. Balaam goes home. Case hurrah, hurrah. But that's not actually what happens. Apparently, we learn, was it six chapters later? <laughs> There's a little something else that takes place in the midst of this. Um, Balaam leaves at the end of chapter 24, and at the beginning of chapter 25, the Israelite men begin indulging in sexual immorality with Moabite women, sacrificing to their gods by eating sacrificial and eating the sacrificial meals at those sacrifices, which were acts of worship to these gods. Well, you know, Balaam doesn't have to curse Israel now, does he? Because God's pretty hot with Israel at the moment. <laughs> the job taken care of there. And, and, and uh, then in Numbers 31, verse 16, we're informed that this was all set up by Balaam, who, in a roundabout way, gets the way, what Balak wanted him to do, because he suggests to Balak that he use the Moabite women, more or less like prostitutes, to entice the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord. Balaam ends up getting killed at the end of the story with, guess what, a room fire. <laughs> A sword to his uh, midsection, I suppose. But <clears throat> Balaam's name then becomes synonymous in the biblical story with false teachers who for financial gain influence God's people to engage in idolatry and immora- immorality. The, the uh, Jude uh, verse 11, there's only one chapter, so just Jude verse 11 speaks of those who have rushed for profit into Balaam's uh, uh, error. And 2 Peter, in chapter 2, it speaks of those who left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, who loved the wages of wickedness. So you get the idea that his name became a a, a byword, if you will, for these things. How is this in play in Pergamum? Well, just as Balaam enticed the people of God to eat at sacrificial meals, and to engage in sexual immorality, some in Pergamum have taught believers to do the same. We don't know exactly what their reasoning was, but 1 Corinthians chapter 8 provides an explicit example of one such argument. Some, of the, some in Corinth had decided that since idols were, well, there really are no other gods beside the one God, which, of course, for the Christian is the reason why we would never worship another god. But they use that logic to say, since they aren't gods anyway, we can do whatever we want and it doesn't really matter. Okay, see how that works out for you. Paul then compares them in chapter 10 to the Israelites who died in the wilderness, referencing both the golden calf event of Exodus and the Balaam event of the book of Numbers that we just talked about. 
and how they then ended up dying in the wilderness. So these sacrificial meals that the Corinthians and the people in Pergamum were evidently uh, partaking in were held at uh, uh, the temple, and, and their participation was expected by the community. It involved both idolatry and sexual immorality. But remember, allegiance to Caesar in this way is what holds the society together. So if we're going to have an empire, we have to have this. That's just the logic of how it works. And, and so to not eat at these would harm the empire. And so the community is against the idea of somebody not you know, abstaining as well. It's not just Caesar who's upset. The whole community gets upset. Like those people, the townspeople of Ottawa, Hey, you're hurting our company. That's blessing us, right? <laughs> Never mind what it's doing to them. Eh, you know, <laughs> we're okay with that. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna bow down over here. And the, the meals per, uh, involve idolatry, obviously offering sacrifices to, to, to Caesar or some other idol and then ultimately to Caesar. And sexual immorality since prostitutes were hired to serve the food and you can imagine what was going on in the context of the meal. Um. Here's the connection to greed. To not eat at these festivals likely meant loss of business or employment. Let's be reasonable. Why would we do that? I mean, does Christ really want me to lose my job? I won't be able to support the church. It, it just doesn't quite make sense. And, of course, it'll lead to charges of disloyalty to Caesar, which we could lose our lives. The, the motivation for embracing the teaching of Balaam is financial gain. So that's the same motivation that Balaam had himself. And in the early 90s, our family moved to St. Louis, back from Salt Lake City to St. Louis, where I'd accepted a position in office equipment sales. Uh, not infrequently, my commitment to my team, because you're put on a sales team, and together you have to hit a certain amount of sales so that the manager gets his bonus. You know, <laughs> that's how that works. It's real simple. Uh, my commitment to my team was questioned. Because I wouldn't go with them to the strip clubs at the end of the month when they were celebrating a good month. Other reps actually ridiculed me, mocked me, right there in the office, because I would not participate. When questioned by my boss, why aren't you a team player? We're going over there to celebrate. Um, I told them that my commitment to the team is seen in the fact that I'm out closing sales while they're out partying, and that's the reason they can afford to do it. My sales are paying for your party. So if you want me to be a team player, I'll tell you what, you give me a gift certificate so I can take my wife to dinner after you guys go out and party at the strip club. He did. <laughs> he did. <clears throat> now, I don't know if that was the best response, but that's just what I was fired with that day. Because I was a little ticked off, needless to say. But I'm not going to participate. I got, that wasn't the only time that ever came up. Because later in my time there, I got assigned somebody that was my boss who did the same thing. You need to come with us. And No. These are team events. No. <clears throat> um, actually, it has a lot to do with why I ended up here in Florida. So, what is the teaching of the Nicolaitans that is mentioned? The short answer is we do not know with any certainty what the teaching of the Nicolaitans is. Nor do we know who Nicholas was with certainty. There are references. Some think, well, it was a, because of an early reference uh, 
that it was uh, the, the Nicholas of Acts chapter 6 that became a deacon. But we don't know whether that's true or, or not. Um, but a common view suggests that the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans are the same thing. And I think our text itself makes that pretty clear. First, the name Balaam means destroyer of peoples, implying ruling over people. You have the power to destroy them, you rule over them. The name Nicholas uh, means conqueror of peoples. Same basic meaning. The first word of verse 15 is likely best translated as in this way, or if you want to use a little bit older language, thus. I love that word, thus. It's so useful. Thus. (laughs) You have also... Uh, You also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So he describes the error of the teaching of Balaam. They're eating sacrificial meats to idols. They're committing sexual immorality. And then we can take verse 15 this way. In this way, by doing those things, in other words, thus, by embracing the teaching of Balaam, you have also held tightly to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, similar to some who tried to do it in Ephesus. Because remember, Ephesus was charged with you know, the fact that that came up. But what happened in Ephesus? Well, in Ephesus, the congregation did not tolerate such teaching. Indeed, they hated it as Christ hated it. But those in Pergamum have tolerated what Christ hates by following the teaching of Balaam, which likewise is the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So I think that's the best way to understand it from all the different reads I've done on it. It, it fits the text. It fits... Uh, the fact that it's not explained <laughs> with anything, so it, it just, it, it does. So that's what I go with it. How might you or I, how might we as a congregation have compromised, how might we have in our own lives have compromised with immorality? I mean, pornography is rampant. Offering food to idols and then offering you bits and pieces of it as, as it's, it's done in our culture. That's not as common of a situation. But there are other ways that, that we engage in idolatry. How have we as a church or individuals given our allegiance to, allegiance to anyone other than Christ? What, what golden calves have we built renaming them as Yahweh, God, or Christian? These compromises with idolatry and immorality were deeply concerning issues for the otherwise faithful believers at Pergamum. And that leads to the fourth heading, Christ's corrective. Look at verse 16, just the first two words, repent therefore. That's his corrective. Real short and clear. (laughs) Repent therefore. The solution is basically... Change how you think. Change how you think. Because Christ knows if you change how you think, you'll change how you live. You can't change how you think without changing how you live. Because if you don't change how you live, you really didn't change how you think. You just professed to change how you thought. Until we come to truly understand the war we are engaged in, and the true nature of compromise with idolatry and immorality, and change how we think. Change how we think about peace, prosperity, security, life, and how they all come about. 
Until we change how we think about those things, we won't stop bowing down to the idols of the age. Who is your Savior? I, frankly, I love that I live in the United States of America. But I have discovered that there are plenty of Christians who live with the subconscious belief that the United States of America and its holding together is what will bring them peace and security and prosperity. It's their Messiah. And it's a pretty easy temptation to fall into. I mean, it's pretty cozy. I get it. I'm not, I wouldn't claim exemption from having done so. But I think we have to be careful. I won't belabor the point, but certainly there are plenty of German Christians who felt the same way about Germany. And then they get a dictator and they had no theology that would allow them to reject the chancellor, Herr Hitler. We need to have a theology that will allow us to reject. Paul prayed continually for the Colossians, asking God to fill them with the knowledge of His will through all wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way. That is the only way to change how we think. That we would be filled with the knowledge of His will, what He wants us to do, how He wants us to live, with all spiritual wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Education is wonderful. I, I, I advise people to get an education. That's a good thing. You can't get this from education. You can only get it from the Spirit's wisdom, and it's the wisdom of the cross. I talk about that plenty, so I'll move on. Miroslav Volf describes what a lack of this spiritual understanding brings. He says, quote, Our coziness with the surrounding culture has made us so blind to many of its evils that instead of calling them into question, we offer our own versions of them in God's name and with a good conscience. Let me rephrase that. We build golden calves and name them Yahweh, as some of our ancestors did. The church today is addicted to the culture of success, and we are often blind to its evils, never questioning its methods and eventually sanctifying them as being, quote, biblical principles of leadership, end quote. Bill Hole addresses this blindness in his book, quote, The Christian Leader, the name of the book is The Christian Leader, Rehabilitating Our Addiction uh, to Secular Leadership. Rehabilitating Our Addiction to Secular Leadership. Chapter 1 is titled, Rehabilitate Your Thinking About Jesus. That is Jesus' point to Pergamum. They need to rehabilitate how they think about Jesus as king and ruler. And I think we as the church do too today. That profits for gain, Balaam's if you will, abound with pastors functioning as corporate CEOs and and, and ridiculous salaries is evidence that we too have lost the way of Christ. I recommend, by the way, reading uh, that book I just mentioned, The Christian Leader by Bill Hull, but also uh, a book that, that along this line I think is very helpful. It's called The Way of the Dragon and the Way of the Lamb. 
Um, and, and I put those in your, in your uh, uh, handout so that you have those. But uh, I recommend both of those. Uh, I'm actually right now going through the way of the dragon and the way of the lamb with a, a handful of, of guys um, just working through it. And, and it's been a rich time. Um, repent, therefore. The brevity of that corrective increases its clarity. Change how you think. And then finally, Christ's consequence. Verse 16b and says, Otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Literally, but if you don't, change how you think, but if you don't, I, I will come to you soon. Some think, great, Jesus is coming back. Well, not so fast. He might come and fight against them with the sword of his mouth. Now, it strikes me odd, to be honest with you, that it says them. I will fight against them, the third person, not you, second person. Uh, we, we expect you. In fact, I, for a long time, I expected you so much, I just read you. I didn't even stop to think that it said them. I just assumed you. And, and I think what's happening here is that Christ is making a distinction between those he knows who are faithful and those whom he does not know, to whom he might say, I never knew you, who are idolaters. Some within the church, through their compromise, are actually in league with the very beast who ate their brother Antipas. They're on the wrong side of the war, and he will come and war against them. Unless they repent. When is this coming? I will come. Uh, I'm coming soon. Quickly. Is it the second coming? Or is it an earlier hidden coming? Well, I think all indicators in this prophetic message point to the fact that it's primarily about a way in which Christ would come in their near future to address the issue of their idolatry. Just as he will in every believer's life, he will come if he needs to address things. Every church's life, if he needs to address things, and, and, and he does. But I think it also has obvious implications for the second coming as well. And fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Is Jesus going to come and slaughter them with a sword? <laughs> well, we can't say what this fight would look like specifically. But since it's the sword of my mouth, it is clearly a metaphor. Because um, you don't swing swords with your mouth. It's some kind of judgment. Would it be removal from the church? Some kind of gospel condemnation? I mean, we know in Ephesians 6 that the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, so there's likely a very strong connection there. Is it a word of Christ that comes in the form of removal from the church? That would be pretty serious if you understand the nature of that biblically. I, I don't know. But it doesn't speak well for their eternal state. That much I can say for, with certainty. What is the positive consequence for those who change their thinking in Pergamum? Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. To the one who is victorious or who overcomes, it could translate it either way. Elsewhere, John tells us, everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is a victory that has overcome the world, even our 
faith, our loyalty, our allegiance. Victory is had through loyalty and allegiance to Jesus as king. The loyal person will receive two things. First, I will give them some of the hidden manna. Now, wilderness story of Balaam and and that whole event has already been raised. So we're we're in the wilderness. Why not keep using the wilderness? Um, The Balaam story explained why many people died in the wilderness, but manna is why many people lived in the wilderness. They, They were sustained by manna in the wilderness, and Christ promises to sustain them. Uh, in the wilderness of this world while they remain faithful to him. But what does it mean to call it hidden manna? Well, I think it's hidden in two ways. First, when the Babylonians sacked the temple and, and, and destroyed it back in, when, when Judah was taken into exile, uh, as the story goes, the Jews had hidden away the Ark of the Covenant and its contents, including uh, the jar of manna that had been saved, and, and it was to be returned in the Messianic age, that it would come back when the new king came, the Messiah who would rule uh, over them. And, and so it was hidden. Um, and so Christ is promising to give them some of that hidden manna, if you will. Um, For those who remain loyal to Christ, who hold fast to his name, though they may suffer poverty, they'll still be fed by Christ. They'll receive manna instead of sacrificial meats. Um, I don't think it's something we get in heaven. Like, you know, when you get to heaven, I'll give you some hidden manna. Because, number one, when we get to heaven, the manna's not going to be hidden anyway. How do you get some hidden manna if it's not hidden? Christ is, you know, plainly visible. Uh, But, number two, you need it in the wilderness. And it's these believers in Pergamon that remain faithful that will need the manna. And so I think it's something they receive in the present. Now, the second thing that he will give them is a white stone with a new name written on it so that that no one knows except the one who receives it. And whenever we have a reference to something that is really hard to identify what it refers to, we can't be certain about it, we, we must speak softly about it, you know. There's some things we can speak loudly. Like, God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, right? I mean, that's clear. But when we talk about what this white stone is, we should probably speak softly because we're not as certain in what we say about it. So let's not be adamant. And we should certainly never have um, created some odd theologies out of verses like this. Uh, theologies like, you know, uh, you know there's a, a, a different class of Christians who get the hidden stone. And, oh, wait a minute. Uh, be careful. We don't really know what that is. Let's not start creating whole things like that from it. Um, but among the various ideas about what this refers to, consider these. First, since manna was already, has already been mentioned, we should note that manna is described um, in, in, as being white in both Exodus and Numbers. And in the Greek Old Testament, uh, in, in the book of Numbers, um, I think the Hebrew says it looks like bedellium, which is some kind of stone, I guess. And then, but in the, in the Greek Old Testament, it says it looks like um, crystallis. Crystallis, which is where we get crystals, ice crystals. Looks like ice crystals. Now, last time I checked, ice crystals are white. Looked in my freezer just to make sure. Sure enough, they're white. And they're hard. <laughs> so, like a rock. And so that's something to keep in mind as we consider it. 
Now, but additionally, the word for stone is also a word that would be used to speak about pebbles of either guilt or innocence that would be cast after a trial to determine the verdict. You, instead of putting in guilty, not guilty, you, you throw a white stone or a, you know, the color could be varied. But the point is you put in a stone determining innocence or guilt. And so Christ is giving them one of righteousness, a white stone, one of, one of, of innocence, if you will, being sanctified. That's his verdict on them when they remain faithful. Um, and as far as the new name, I don't think we can say with any certainty whether it's a new name for the person or a new name by which Christ reveals himself to them. It will sustain the believer as the manna did and may assure them of Christ's declaration of their innocence despite imperial condemnation and, and potentially death. And it will include knowing Christ in a particular way or being known by Christ in a particular way. Those are things I think we can draw from it. May we as a church have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen? Just a couple of things in closing. Surely our brothers and sisters in many places around the world will face temptations to compromise by participation in idol worship for personal gain. Sexual immorality is rampant here in our own country and where we live, in our homes, our lives. I mean, it it finds its way through just about everything. Media of every kind. And statistics don't indicate a vast difference in how this is practiced between the church and the world. How is the church's witness strengthened in the world? I think that's a question we have to wrestle with. How is the church's witness witness strengthened in the world? Is it through... Power, prosperity, political influence, horses, chariots. Oh, wait, I was mixing in biblical metaphors. But is it those things that represent power in the world? Or is it, as we demonstrate an alternative way of sacrificial living, an alternative community for those who have ears to hear? One sizzles more, I'll grant you that. I'm not sure that what it's accomplishing is, has much to do with the kingdom. The book of Revelation calls us to discern the presence of empire in our midst and refuse to succumb to its seductions. However, empire today isn't always in the form of political entities. In a day of a global economy, large corporations and financial institutions can take that role. Or in a smaller community, the beast can come in uh, religious forms or corporate forms like the Radium Dial Corporation, or any number of ways, we must be alert to discern them and resist their seductions. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives so that, you may live, or so that we may live a life worthy of the Lord, worthy of you, Lord, and please you, in every way. Through Christ Jesus our Lord we pray. Amen. Amen.